Well, hello, everyone. My name is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled here in the tall timbers of Colorado. Great to have you with us today. It is Friday, July 28th, 2023. Uh, and if I sound excited, it's because I am. We've had a fantastic week. I've just been really encouraged in the Lord with uh, just some of the, the things that we've been able to do this week. I've been able to get some research done on my uh, new book. I've been able to interact with many of you in some uh, phone calls, texts, and emails. I uh, had some great podcasts, some fantastic uh, guests on uh, this week, and just so thankful uh, to the Lord that I get to to really uh, make my living and support my family doing what I love to do, which is uh, sharing the gospel, studying the Word of God, and proclaiming uh, the Word of God. And I can't think of a better way to end this uh, great week than by having our resident technologist, my good friend and colleague uh, Shane, on with us. We're going to introduce him in just a moment as he gives us an update on uh, AI. We're, we're talking today about the snowballing nature of artificial intelligence, and uh, I'll bring him on here uh, in just a moment. But uh, to set the stage for our podcast today, now someone sent me a text yesterday that I thought really captured well how fast things are moving. They said, quote, as fast as all of this technology is advancing, it seems like the mark of the beast at the halfway point of the tribulation will be old technology by then. And I'm thinking, yeah, that might very well be the case. I mean, we sort of assume that, you know, the Antichrist is going to roll out some cutting edge technology, you know, midway through Daniel's 70th week. But uh, as I've actually tried to point out before, although I didn't say it quite as uh, cleverly as this person that texted me, uh, we may very well be in a one-world system long before the Antichrist takes the helm. And so if the Lord does not come back soon, the types of things we see unfolding today, in, especially in the realm of technology and AI, could in fact be a standard operating procedure by the time the Antichrist takes over, the rapture has already happened, and at the midpoint, they uh, kind of implement their full-spectrum planetary control grid using the mark of the beast. Uh, so what we want to caution you about as we uh, talk today with Shane, and what we hope that we're always cautioning you about, is just being aware of what's happening and being able to differentiate uh, the worldly system from God's system. And I was reminded from Paul's first letter to the Galatians of it was a different day and a different specifics, but those Christians too <clears throat> were uh, falling prey to an old system, a worldly uh, system. And Paul's trying to remind them that in Christ, uh, they're no longer under the bondage of the old system. Listen to what he said. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through 
Christ. And so, of course, Paul there is talking about the distinction between the law and grace and how the, the Jews had needed a steward to be put in place, as he talks about in chapter 3 of Galatians, until Christ came. But now we're to follow the, the law that's written on our hearts, the Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. But that same Spirit dwells within us today, 2,000 years later, and He's the one who can help us uh, discern truth from error and uh, kind of hedge ourselves against uh, the worldly philosophy, the kinds of things that we read about in Colossians 2. I talked about this on a podcast yesterday where, you know, Paul says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And indeed, things are getting worse and worse as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.13, and so, you know, evil men and imposters wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So these basic principles of the world are becoming more and more of an issue, and I fear that most believers who are uh, either completely apostate or, at, at you know, in many cases at least asleep, are ill-equipped because they've drifted so far from the Word uh, to discern truth from error. Remember, John tells us in 1 John 4, 1, that we should test the spirits uh, to see if they are from the Lord, because many false prophets have gone out there. Uh, so it's it's becoming harder and harder to dis distinguish between truth and error. Someone sent me a, a TikTok uh, video that's, uh, uh, I don't know the, the person that uh, runs this uh, channel on TikTok, but uh, essentially... Uh, it's a it's a five minute uh, expose talking about how he asked AI about the second coming of Jesus and the response left him stunned. And so uh, we need to really have our sensors uh, up. And that's why I love uh, having uh, <laughs> Shane on. And to kick us off, I've got uh, first of all, by the way, welcome, Shane. So glad to have you with us today. Great to be back. Thanks. So I want to kick it off uh, as you get started here with a question from one of our listeners. Um, uh, this is from uh, Sharon. I don't think she'll mind me using her name, but uh, she, she, you know, I think is doing the right thing here by, you know, being sensitive to the pervasive nature that you've been warning about for several weeks now of AI. And she wanted to know about the implications of that relative to a specific uh, online class that she takes where they announced that they're going to be starting to use AI. And she wanted to know, Shane, if she uh, access continues to access the site or downloads videos from that site or a PDF information sheet that they make available, is that somehow going to put her computer at risk? Is it going to uh, put her privacy at risk and, and things like that? Would her computer become infected somehow by this fact that this website is using AI? So let's start there and then uh, take it away, Shane. Sounds good. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually, um, I'm glad we are dealing with this topic because as AI continues to become pervasive, right, it's going to be almost everywhere. Um, these type of questions are, are ones we're going to need to to, uh, to be aware of, uh, make sure we understand um, what that AI is 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 uh, capable of doing uh, before we you know use these products. But uh, I took a look at the uh, uh, the link that you sent me for that uh, uh, organization. And no, I don't think there's any risk of this. Uh, what this company has done is taken a, uh, language model, large language model, kind of like a chat GPT, 
um, and has trained that language model on their data and is using that trained AI to then answer questions, act as a, a an assistant, a tutor, things of that nature. And I think we're going to see this type of thing happening uh, on, on a very regular basis. As a matter of fact, last year, I was considering a system similar to this at the institution I work for as a way of providing 24 by, severing, uh, 24 by 7 tutoring to students and uh, uh, became a little bit uneasy with it and decided not to, um, at, at least not right now. But, um, but yeah, I think we're going to see this type of thing everywhere. I don't believe there's any risk to uh, this particular uh, system. Again, the large language model is just a tool that's good at solving language-related uh, problems. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, by the way, we're talking to Shane again. I know we pick up new listeners all the time. God's really been opening new doors for uh, for us here at NBW Ministries. In fact, I talked to uh, Tom Hughes again today. Uh, we were scheduled or about to be scheduled to be back on his. Uh, program. I love that guy. Just really at the tip of the spear in sounding the alarm. He has some of the best guests on. Uh, uh, he had Scott Townsend on recently. That was a fantastic interview. If you haven't heard that, go go back and listen to uh, uh, Tom Hughes. Hope for our times in his interview with uh, Scott Townsend. But anyway, we're talking to Shane in case you're new to the program. He's a resident technologist expert. He works for an institute of higher learning. He's been involved in all kinds of uh, some of the big six uh, accounting or uh, consulting firms and uh, just really uh, my go-to guy when I have technology questions. We actually used to work together and I was probably one of those pesky guys that would, you know, put in a request for uh, the help desk because, you know, hey, I can't get my mouse to work or something like that. But thankfully, uh, I've come a long way in my understanding of and use of technology. I'm not quite the Luddite I once was. But anyway, Shane really has helped us navigate through some of these breaking uh, stories that have now become commonplace, so like talking about chat uh, GPT. But as you've told us uh, many times, uh, there are good applications for these large language models. In other words, uh, technology it, in and of itself is neutral. It's really how you use it. Am I right? Absolutely. So what, what we're going to need to pay attention to is like, like in this case, I don't think there's uh, any real risk to the system. Um, but when we give AI's access to our data, that's where we, we're going to need to pay more attention. What happens to our data when the AI has access to it? Um, that, that would be the piece I'm, I'm concerned about. But this particular application, uh, I, I don't see any security issues with it per se. Um, you know, one of the things to watch out for, though, and we've talked about this on past episodes, is a problem inherent to large language model AIs is that of hallucination, which is where the AI, when prompted, will give a response very confidently, if I can use that word, but the information is wrong. And the reason why these hallucinations occur is because the AI doesn't actually know what it's doing. Large language model AIs are large statistical tables, looking at when this word is used, Followed by this word, what's the most likely word coming after it or words coming after it? Might you know use a little bit larger window like that? But so that's what's happening, and that's why hallucinations occur. 
And, and honestly, that is one of the reasons, uh, there, there were a number of them, but one of the reasons why I decided that I shouldn't try to work on that system, um, because we are handling the word of God, we need to be accurate. Mm. And I just didn't feel I could trust the AI. And yet, you know, so many companies, as I as I keep my finger on the pulse of this stuff, largely because of the book that I'm writing, but also because I know we're going to talk about it. And and so uh, you, I think, have helped me subscribe to a few different newsletters that that are really more for technologists that kind of give us uh, updates. But, you know, I see every day almost uh, the fact that more and more companies are using uh, AI, and they don't seem to be concerned, or at least it, it, they're not telling us if they are, about these hallucinations or the limitations of it. For example, I just saw, when was this? Today, actually, Amazon is trying to build autonomous agents. Well, I mean, are they not at risk, these autonomous agents, of making mistakes? They, they are absolutely at risk, um, but I don't know that being at risk for making a mistake is really the standard because if they had human agents there, there was there's still a risk um, yeah. of, of the human agents making mistakes, and we've accepted that. You know, it's, yeah, it's kind of I mean, like the, the question with drive, uh, dr you know, uh, driverless cars, autonomous vehicles. The, you know, the the standard we keep throwing up is that uh, that many people throw up is that these things still wreck. They're still not perfect. But yeah. what they're compared to, it isn't perfect either. And as a matter of fact, the autonomous vehicles, I think, are demonstrably safer than humans are as a whole. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's true. And people, because it's new technology, they tend to think, wow, this is so, you know, you know, it's cognitive dissonance, right? That's so different, for, or I guess more the normalcy bias. I can't, you know, I've never heard of this. It must be dangerous. But when you compare the statistics, far more people get injured through, you know, on the whole, as a percentage of the whole, from, you know, human driving than uh, these driverless uh, cars. I'm not advocating for that, but that's a good point. Uh, another uh, r related issue is DoorDash is testing chatbot for ordering. And, you know, right. I mean, I, I'll be thrilled when we can get human beings to get your order right. Nevertheless, nevertheless, these uh, you know AIs. I mean, what are the chances of that, right? Yeah. So I think I think we're gonna we're gonna be dealing with in the coming few years. And and again, I don't I don't think this whole issue is ten years off. Um, I, I kind of wish it was, but we are, you know, a year, two years. This is the kind of windows that I'm I'm concerned about. Um, we will be dealing with AI disrupting things in two ways. One is in areas where the AI is actually better than us. Uh, and, and I'll have a, a, a news article today talking about that, or in the case of say driverless vehicles, AI is is better than us. Um, you know, reading radiological reports in the medical field, AI has been better than people for years and years. You know, that's just not a question. Um, so, so we have that where AI is better than us, but, um, but I think where the biggest disruption will be is not in those areas where AI is clearly better at certain narrow tasks. It's going to be the more general purpose kind of AI that may not be better than people, but it's close in its capabilities to what a person is, but it works at a radically lower cost. Right. Than people. That's going to be the disruption. 
Yeah, so. and, and we've talked about that, and that's why you know that this is a big concern is the job loss, and you you yep. speculated we could see in the next year or two eighty percent. I think other people are starting to echo the same thought. But you know, back to the driverless cars because I can see the emails coming in already. Uh, we're we're not advocating for that because there are other implications of that, such as control. I mean, I watched a sci-fi. Not I say sci-fi. It's just a regular um, movie here recently, a recent movie in which uh, you know it was it was looking into the future. I think it was the year twenty thirty four, and uh, these were all driverless cars. But when they don't like something you're doing uh, or they want to get control of you, they can lock you into your car take control of the steering wheel take control of everything and drive you right to you know uh the police station so there are other implications of, of this but we're just saying that by comparison you know ai isn't you know bad at at doing certain things in fact it's better at doing certain things but there are other implications wouldn't you agree of some of the use of this you absolutely so um so again, I, I think what's going to catch a lot of people, and when I say a lot of people, I mean most people off guard with AI replacing jobs, human jobs, is we will hold in our heads the standard of, yes, this AI is not as good as me at doing whatever my discipline is. But it doesn't, uh, what, what I'm arguing is just due to economics and the way and this isn't an anti-capitalist statement, it's just a, a reality. The way capitalism works is if I can get 80 to 90% of the performance of a, of a human in non-critical areas at, let's just say it's 10% of the cost, that's a win. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be good enough. It, it's yeah. going to be good enough. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, uh, and a lot of models you know, even before AI and technology, you know, you know, in, include all of that. They just, they write off certain amounts of product or damage or whatever, because in the grand scheme of thing, you know, for example, in shipping, right. It, they might, you know, use a method of shipping where a certain percentage of the product gets damaged in shipping, but the cost to ship it that way is so much cheaper than trying to find a way to ship that product where nothing gets damaged, that they can they, they can take the margin and more than cover the cost of replacing the items that got damaged. And so they just, they, it's all bottom line numbers. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, the snowballing nature of artificial intelligence, uh, as this one email indicates, it's going to be all around us, whether we recognize it or not, right? Absolutely. So get used to, to interacting with AIs. That That's just a reality. Yeah. Give us uh, some more examples of that. Uh, of of which in particular, I'm sorry. Yeah, of just of just pervasive AI. Where where else might it already be cropping up and we, you know, may not even know it. So so your productivity suites from companies like Microsoft and Google uh, have AI capabilities. Mm. Uh there's a a um Windows um I don't know if you call it an add-in but an add-in available for Windows 11 that talks to OpenAI. Um, and it can help perform system tasks. You, you know, you'd brought up in the past needing tech support, okay? What if your computer through an AI embedded in the computer is able to provide that tech support and is able to take care of problems for you? Uh, you don't like the way something is working. 
using natural language, you tell your computer that I don't like this. I'd like it to operate this other way. And the AI acting like a human technician would come in, make those changes in just a matter of seconds. And it's available to you 24 by 7. Mm. So we're going to see it embedded in, in operating systems and software we use. And it's really just a matter of, I think, you know, it's less than a couple of years where we're going to see in our phones the agents that are built in, be it Siri or Google Assistant, depending on which platform you're uh, you're fondest of, um, those will be replaced by much more capable large language models like we see right now with ChatGPT. Mm. It will be literally everywhere. Um, embedded in the, you know, the companies you work with, they're going to deploy AI agents to help lower their operating cost. Instead of having a person being that front line that you interface with, it's going to be an AI. There's no doubt about this. And for those areas, that smaller percentage of issues, the AI is not capable of solving or it runs into an issue and just uh, the, the, the human just isn't happy with what's happening. Then at that point, I think the AI will escalate that call or that interaction up to a human. Hmm. Uh, and so and, and so that human it gets escalated to falls into that roughly 20 percent that won't lose their jobs to AI. But you're going to be interfacing with AIs because, like I said, I think for for um, the lion's share of the jobs we currently have in our economy, uh, those will be replaced by AI systems. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's just every day I hear more. And by the way, Jeffrey Hinton, who I've talked about before, I think I even cite him in in one of my books, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume Two. Uh, he's known as the the Godfather of AI. He came out recently. Uh, this is according to the uh, uh, Times Times of London, I think, uh, and talked about how he thinks chatbots could have feelings. Um, I mean, you've talked about this before, but for our new listeners, talk about sentience. We we dedicated a whole podcast to that here recently. But you know, are these AI, you know, large language model systems or other systems, are they going to ever be able to become human? No, I, I do not believe that for a moment. Um, I um, and, and and by the way, this is such a sticky. And volatile topic when you start talking about AI, uh, it's it's unreal. Um, there's clearly a significant camp of of people, including researchers, who believe that AI systems will eventually become sentient, and so others would say they're eventually going to become superhuman. Um, and you know, and I don't think we should dismiss those those ideas as being, you know, wrong. Um, I'm not. I currently don't see anything that makes me believe that's going to happen, but I also am not of the school of thought that just because you don't achieve AGI or super intelligence or something like that, that it's not going to be a, a massive disruptive force. When we, um, I, and I'll come back to the sentience issue here in, in just a moment, we have to, everyone needs to recognize the disruption that will occur. Maybe one of the best parallels to us is something like the combustion engine. Um, you know, at first it was this oddity and it looked pretty cool when you could power certain machines and accomplish certain 
task and save labor. Nowadays, when we look at something like a combustion engine, you can find it in so many different uh, platforms. Um, there are combustion engines that uh, power small airplanes for hobbyists, combustion engines and lawnmowers, in scooters, in cars, in um, you know airplanes. And we can find that array just from one company like Honda. Honda makes everything. Um, and so when the combustion engine first came out, there's no way people could have, could have envisioned all these applications. They could not have envisioned that world where people didn't have to hook up horses or other animals to plows to 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 work with the earth to grow food and so forth. Um, you know, they would be blown away by by what technology, what the combustion engine has done. And that's what we're going to see here. It's going to be disruptive. Now, on the issue of sentience, um, my, my first issue is um, how do you define that? Right. Um, I don't, you know, I, so I think mm -hmm. there's, there's it's, it's one of these uh, these items we, we have a rough sense of what it is, but being able to define it well enough to come up with a standard or a test for it, that's the problem. While I'm not of the opinion that AIs will become sentient, I don't know that that's really the issue for us as as humans. If people think it's sentient, then they will conduct themselves like the AI is sentient. And it has the same effect. You have a machine controlling a person. Yeah. I mean, if if you uh, an, an analogy that I've thought of recently is related to sentience is if we watch movies and you see the actors on the screen portraying sadness or anger or happiness, they are not really sad or happy or angry. They are acting right. They're getting yep. paid a lot of money to portray that. Well, in the same way. AI, especially when we get to embodied AI, you know, they may look and indicate, or in the case of language models, sound like from what they're writing, that they are, you know, sad or angry. Uh, you know, one uh, that I saw recently on one of these emails was that they were, uh, you know, they were saying how it seems like uh, chat GPT is getting angry or something like that, you know. Yeah. Um but they're not really doing that. So just because something appears sentient does not mean it's sentient. And I agree with you completely from a biblical anthropology standpoint, only mankind is made in the image of God. And part of that means having those volitional free will, you know, emotions and things like that. And so uh, we may be able to replicate it. And that, of course, is what the transhumanists are trying hard to do. But that doesn't mean uh, you know, that it is actually sentient. Yeah, I just, I, I don't think uh, machines will achieve uh, sentience, but I think they will get so good at mimicking sentience, so good at mimicking emotions and, and personhood, ultimately, that we will see people interacting with and, and in their own, um, trying to choose my words here carefully, in their own way, uh, engaging in relationships with these AI systems that to them it's going to be real and they will live their lives in a fashion that reflects that belief. So so that's why I say I don't know that it really matters. It's kind of like the AGI issue. I don't know that it matters 
whether or not the AIs can achieve AGI. If they get close, that's going to be good enough for this kind of disruption. I don't know that AIs will achieve sentience, but they're going to get close. They're already close. Yeah. And um, and at that point, it will be disruptive. Yeah, and AGI for our listeners, of course, artificial general intelligence, which is the kind of the holy grail of, of AI, right? That's what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, there, there's, there's a, a broader... Uh, goal of, of artificial general intelligence, meaning that you have an AI that is a lot like most people in that it's capable of performing a variety of tasks uh, pretty well, you know, at, at a human level, we would call that. Um, and so, so many researchers are pursuing AGI. Uh, and at that point, you would have AIs that are basically as good as a person. Um, and then you have the much more narrow goal of super intelligence so not only do you have this uh, you, you have to start off with this foundation of agi but at, at some point the ai starts building itself and coming up with new versions and testing itself and keeping the good stuff and getting rid of the bad stuff and eventually could achieve this level of super intelligence where it's almost godlike and there is a uh significantly influential segment of the AI research community that is pursuing that kind of technology. Yeah, and I saw recently OpenAI shut down its AI detection tool. You and I were talking about that, I think, before we went on the air. Yeah. It, that's pretty scary, right? Because, you know, for, well, first of all, explain what that means. What, what is an AI detection tool and why is it a problem if AI can shut it down? <laughs> So, so one of the issues with these different generative AI technologies, and by generative, it it generates something. So, in the case of ChatGPT, being a large language model, it is generating text. Um, you know, writing the poems, writing computer code, whatever it is you're 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 wanting it to do. So, um, so there are, have been tools developed that can look at the output of, say, a, a tool like OpenAI or Google's Bard or one of those, and um, can, can analyze the text and come up with a prediction of how likely it is that that body of text was written by an AI. And typically the way these work is, is, is two areas. One is uh, sentence length. Uh, when people talk, we tend to be bursty. We'll have longer sentences, shorter sentences. There's a lot of variety to the lengths of those sentences. Uh, when AIs uh, current, you know, this current generation of them tend to write, they tend to have pretty evenly linked sentences within whatever the, the text is or generating. Um, so it's a combination of that. Then also earlier I'd mentioned the way these large language models work is really a statistics table on the likelihood of if I see this word and this word, but the next word is whatever. And so they would say, if I were writing, you know, and again, here I'm <laughs> making it sound like it's human, but I would say, if I were tasked with this, it's reasoning through this, and I think that's fair to say, it's reasoning through this problem. If I were generating this text, what do I, what would I generate as the next word? And when whatever the AI guesses the next word of the test should be, if it lines up with that, it increases that probability score that that text was generated by an AI system. Now, recently, OpenAI took their detection tool down. Um, I don't know that I quite understand the reasoning behind it. They've been a little bit vague. My guess is, is 
the AI, the, the detection system started failing in that the AIs have gotten better and it just wasn't uh, as good a tool as one would need for it to be to use it to catch cases of AI-based plagiarism. So for example, one of the, the issues is in higher education uh, or well, actually any kind of education, having a student, instead of writing the paper themselves, they're using the AI to do it. And so being able to detect that kind of plagiarism is very important, but something that we can't have is a plagiarism detection detection system that falsely accuses people of using an AI to generate their their content. Hmm. Um, I, can, I can speak as you know when, when my uh, my first year in college, um, I had a professor accuse me of plagiarism, and uh, and, and I, I say I've honestly never plagiarized uh, anything. Um, as a matter of fact, my my first year in seminary, my very first seminary class, which is an online class, so everything was in a written form. Uh, my classmates um, jokingly gave me a, an award for the most footnotes per linear inch in my papers. <laughs> I was so worried about plagiarism, I wasn't going to do that. But um, but let me say, uh, as somebody who is a, a very confident writer and I'm very comfortable writing, being accused of plagiarism when I hadn't done it at all um, and having to defend myself with it and everything worked out fine. Uh, the my English teachers uh, came and said, no, this is his writing. He's a good writer. And so everything was fine. But um, that is a very damaging thing. So um, not only can, do we have to be careful with the damage that the uh, AI could cause directly, but we have to be careful about what damage an AI detection tool could cause indirectly by falsely accusing people of plagiarism. So now that's that sounds like a logical explanation for why OpenAI may, may have shut down its AI detection tool. And by the way, when I first read that, I thought that ChatGPT was somehow shutting down its own AI detection tool, like it was passive. Or, or but but now I understand this was the company itself was sort of turning that off. Um, but uh, but the the conspiracy theorist side of me. Uh, thinks maybe there's another and more nefarious motive for that, and that is the more pervasive, you know, Chat GPT and large language model AI becomes, maybe they're wanting, you know, to prevent people from being able to differentiate AI generated text from natural text. It, it's possible. I certainly can't speak to their motives. You know, I, I can I can say that um, um, from a technical standpoint, some of those challenges are, are are present with AI safety as a whole, right? So, you know, what the AI generates needs to be safe. It needs to be accurate. Uh, you want to minimize bias. You can't have hallucinations. Okay, that that's just an absolute goal. Um, and then, you know, you have this aspect of if you're going to try to detect AI output, you really can't have bad accusations, right? You, you, you can't accuse, uh, you know, J.B. Hickson of plagiarizing his book, um, saying that an AI wrote it. And it, yeah. and it not be true, right? I mean, that that's just, um, that's very irresponsible. There's, there's probably significant liability for the company that turns out a product like that, and it is falsely accusing people um, of, of plagiarism. So, so I, it's it's a challenging technical issue to try to come up with a tool like that. Um, could there be some other 
things like you mentioned, it's possible. Yeah, um, but I mean that that's going to be the same problem that AI has in general as we as we you know rapidly descend into this dystopian world. It's not just large language model things like Chat GPT or Bard. I mean they're they're using AI for predictive crime for you know all kinds of things and you know by nature ai is a matter of percentages right it's 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 a matter of odds like you said they might be only right 80 or 90% of the time but the cost for that is far less than someone who might be a human and be right 90% of the time so i mean i think this is one of the big problems with rolling out ai you know globally to in a variety of of applications is that it's not always accurate and uh, it's it's you know you're gonna you're gonna have to dif- differentiate between truth and uh, and and non-reality and that's that's going to become harder and harder to do, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, and and on that note, um, uh, did you mention that you recently seen the latest Mission Impossible movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just went and saw it. it. I just went and saw it uh, this last weekend, and you know I gotta admit it. That movie really made me think. Um, yeah. And what what I found especially insidious is this concept of a AI who, you know, in this movie, of course, we're dealing with a, a, a super intelligence of, of some nature. Um, and it has unfettered access to the world system somehow. And its ability to change uh, digital data to achieve whatever goals, whatever narrative it has. And so there's that, I, I don't know that I, want to give away too much information to it. I don't want to spoil the movie for somebody. Should I stop with that or should I? Oh, go I don't care if we spoil the movie. Hollywood has enough money already. So okay. plus, you know, from a production standpoint, I don't think it was the best mission impossible, but the, the, the storyline, the plot line was fascinating. It was like snatched from the headlines. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, I'm not a big Tom Cruise fan, frankly, but, um, I thought it was a great movie and it really made me think. Um, and the part that really stunned me in the theater was when the governments of the world, in this case, you know, you know was focused on uh, the, the U.S. government. They were meeting, talking about the risk, what they saw, the problems from this uh, unleashed super AI uh, was going to do, including changing history, right? Going into all of our systems and changing that information and so there's that one scene where you had this massive i'm going to call it a warehouse filled with people at typewriters yeah typing information as quickly as they could because that was the thing the ais couldn't change or the ai could change and i was like wow that yeah, they they went back to analog. They were trying to preserve yep. data from an analog system, and allegedly they had one satellite out there that was still sort of tapped into analog data, and uh, they fired it back up, dusted it off, and but yeah, that was a really moving scene where they're typing stuff out. But you know what occurs to me is that if you understand the Luciferian conspiracy from a biblical worldview. Uh, they always want to rewrite history. They want to lie about history. That's why they took over the textbooks in the early 20th century, way before technology, back then when things were typewriters and typesetting machines and type, you know, uh, things like that. And so now as we advance in technology, in the same way as you've always been good to point out that technology can be helpful in benevolent hands, it just makes the Luciferians' job that much easier 
uh, if they use the same technology to do their evil deeds more efficiently, more economically, and and to do things that they actually could not do before. But yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think we're seeing a little bit of that already because remember, as you've pointed out before, you know what we see in the mainstream now has probably been available behind the scenes, you know, in, in for twenty years in some cases, and so uh, yeah. you know I think that might be what's going on with some of the Mandela effect type scenarios, which are still pretty amazing to me. I don't want to op- necessarily open up that can of worms unless you want to go there, but uh, maybe, maybe a different episode that, cause that is a rabbit hole and a half. Yes, it is. It really is. And so uh, now we've teased it to our listeners. Uh, many of them, of course, that we've got some of the best audience in the world. They, a lot of them probably know what the Mandela effect is, but bottom line is yeah, changing history and uh, which kind of correlates to gaslighting you know and yeah. that, like, like massive societal gaslighting you know and, and i'll and i'll be honest part of the reason that scene struck me so hard is a it's very believable um that that um a reliance on digital information uh could allow us to be slowly and and and, and very very gradually subtly uh, manipulated over time to believing things that are fundamentally not true a number of years ago um, and, and you know how this is when you're in academia, you end up getting a library that you, you don't have enough room for the books. Um, right now, if you go into my, my living room, there are two former library bookcases filled with books. My bedroom has books. My home office has books. There's books everywhere. And so my wife and I were having a discussion about my book addiction. And so we decided that uh, instead of buying a bigger house, I would move to digital books, right? Kindle. And, and that was great. And I do love that digital format. It, it, I like being able to carry my library with me. Um, but a concern I've had all along is, and why I haven't gotten rid of my physical books, is digital can be taken away from you very easily. Yeah. Right? In just a second, somebody could click a button, do something to where I no longer have access to that. Or, for example, um, sometimes when you have a Kindle book, there will be an update to that book after you've purchased it from Amazon. And I think, you know, the only evidence I have is that they're fixing errors in the book, right? There's a uh, some sort of typo on a page. Something wasn't done properly. That's the story behind it, at least. But you can easily see how if a book fell out of favor with the culture, maybe a part of a book, there would be a new revised version of that book that changes the parts that, you know, especially the woke crowd, because I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on them right now, um, would find uh, offensive. They could just change that book you have if it's digital. Yeah. So so and, and this is you know this is probably a good ten years ago when I uh, first started thinking through that part of it. So for any book that I consider vital, that is really important, I want to have a way to not only read it if there's not electricity for some reason but also something that can't be manipulated in the background. Yeah, my journey was was almost identical uh, to that. I'm a big believer in uh, digital uh, books, as you know, 
and uh, used to work for a, a, a Logos Bible software for nine and a half years as a consultant and uh, conference speaker and academic trainer and things like that on the side while we were building Not By Works Ministries. And um, so I, I went through that transition too, and I've regretted it almost ever since, you know, the day after. What I did was I had accumulated a pretty huge library. I think my library at its peak had four to 5,000 print volumes. And when I left academia in 2012 and uh, we moved, uh, uh, you know, out of state to a different state at the time, and uh, I, I I thought, well, I'm, I just, I don't need this. They're expensive to move. So I sold them to a seminary. Uh, and kept only the ones that were sentimental or ones that weren't at that time available digitally. And, um, and, you know, and, and I, and I have, you know, increased my, the size of my library over the years to where my digital library is over 7,000 volumes. And like you said, yeah, you can carry it in your hands. Now, wherever I travel, I have access to my entire library with a click of a button. I can search it. Uh, it's amazing the amount of research you can do digitally now. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, the old print version. In fact, I got to where even before I left at full, full time academia, I, you know, I would walk into a physical library and I would just start to get uncomfortable and get, you know, start shaking almost. And I would think to myself, look at all this information in this building that I can't get to <laughs> because, yeah. you know, in my mind, I'm thinking if I could just go to open a search box and type in, you know, a search, it would instantly you know, I can find all that information. That's the thing about a digital library. I can type in atonement and every book on my shelf that uses the word atonement will jump off the shelf and open itself to that page. Plus you have multiple copies of each book. I can open copy A, copy B, copy C to different pages. So there's huge advantages from a research perspective, you know, from that. I remember when I uh, was defending my dissertation for my PhD, uh, one of the three readers that was on the council there, who was an older gentleman, uh, he said, I can't imagine how you got, how you had so much depth of research in here and so many, as you talked about footnotes and things, and, you know, you must've spent hours upon hours upon hours in the library. And I just, you know, I just let it go. I figured what he didn't know wouldn't hurt me, you know? And so, uh, but, but you're right over time, as I've seen the progression, I've regretted it. And I've started restocking my print library for yeah. all of the reasons that you just said, Shane. And that is, you know, you, when we don't have electricity, you might not be able to access it. Plus, uh, they can't change it. They're not going to be able to come into my, you know, house with a big tub of whiteout and start making changes to my print uh, books. But with a click of a button, they can change uh, all of the digital books. So it, it's a real problem. And I think, you know, art always imitates life. Hollywood is the seat of the Luciferian, you know, satanic ritualism. And so uh, that movie, which presumably, you know, they had to start producing at least a year or two ago, uh, they were already talking about that concept before chat GPT was mainstream. So that tells you maybe they're telegraphing what they're going to be doing, right? Yeah, and, and you know when you talk, look at AI research. Um, there's been a very, very active AI research community for for decades. Um, it, very well organized, um, lots of different branches of it, right? There's because there's different AIs, but that's been going on. What what happened uh, in the fourth quarter of 2022 was through OpenAI's ChatGPT, that technology became very accessible. 
um, anybody, you know how to turn on a computer and go to a website and log in, you could use ChatGPT. And that was what was really interesting about, about uh, OpenAI's approach. Um, lots of good technologies have been there for, for a while. Um, they just weren't as publicly available as ChatGPT. Yeah. So yeah, they were looking at those technologies. And, you know, I have to, oh, probably shouldn't bring this up, but um, but I have to wonder if in some of these cases, um, that information wasn't planted by government level agencies. Um, and what comes to mind, and I'm sure you know where I'm going to go with this, was uh, Chris Carter, um, the writer of the X-Files TV show, had a spinoff called The Lone Gunman. Oh, yeah. The Gunman had an episode before the September 11th attacks where terrorist group uh, took remote control of an airplane and was going to fly it into, was it the World Trade Center? No, not the, uh, no, no, it was. It was the World Trade Center, The Lone Gunman. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's going to fly it in. And, and then, of course, September 11th happened. And I can remember hearing in the uh, in the media, nobody ever could have imagined airplanes hitting a building. Oh, yeah. So news, news report. And not only did we have that lone gunman episode, but there's also a Tom Clancy book that had a very similar plot to it. And that was, you know, a decade or more before the September 11th attacks. And so, so uh, Carter was being interviewed after the September 11th attacks, you know, many years after September 11th attacks. And he indicated that um, he was given the plot to that at a party in Hollywood from a guy who said he was, if I remember correctly, CIA. CIA, yep. I, yeah. Very well attested. Yeah. I talk about that whole Lone Gunman episode in Spirit, My Spirit of the Antichrist yeah. books. I did not tell that story, but yeah, I have told it uh, in many uh, uh, occasions and conferences and so forth. But absolutely, they he was that was planted. That was yep. they gave him that because remember the Luciferian credo is they've got to tell you what they're going to do before they do it. They just that you know they they that's something that they've always operated by. So they will they will put it out there in veiled form. But what was so amazing about that? Never mind what you think about you know, that and 9-11 and all of that. Uh, the the narrative in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I can still vividly remember Condi Rice, Colin Powell, George W. going on TV and all repeating the same narrative that nobody could have possibly imagined that terrorists would hijack domestic aircraft and fly them into buildings. And yet that's exactly what had happened in this pilot episode of uh, the Lone Gunman, uh, which is you know well documented, you can you can look it up, and also books. Uh, same thing happened, by the way, with uh, uh, the uh, uh, Oklahoma City bombing of the Federal Murrah Building. I mean, this one is even more stunning. I also outline this and, and discuss it in my uh, book, uh, where you know, and 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 by the way, Frank Keating was the governor of Oklahoma at the time. He had a, a background in the FBI. He had just become governor, but he was heavily involved in an FBI career before that. Well, his brother uh, wrote a novel that had already been completed and was in the hands of the publisher uh, in which, you know, before 
the the attack on the Federal Murrow Building, uh, in which the plot line was a character named Thomas McVeigh. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Uh, blows up a bomb, a domestic terrorist blows up a federal building in Oklahoma City, and is later captured by chance when a state trooper pulls him over for having a tail light out. And that's exactly what happened with Timothy McVeigh, at least according to the official narrative. Uh, and so, I mean, it it really is. Uh, is amazing. But what you're talking about is the potential now with technology for them to go back in arrears and change data and change uh, history, which has all kinds of implications for the criminal justice system, for evidence, uh, all, all kinds of things, right? Absolutely. And and one of the things that kind of comes to mind there when you when you mention the fact that you can go in after the fact and change what has been written, um, it reminds me of, and I can't remember if it's normally attributed to Lenin or Stalin, um, but he was basically uh, saying that, you know, victory um, and and history belongs to those who write it. Yeah. The fact that you are recording history gives you this tremendous power to shape the direction of the world, ultimately. And so as we continue our move, and many times for great reasons, like we both talked about, we both like having our books digital. Um, when we when we have that as an absolute standard globally, the level of manipulation and historical revisionism that can occur is stunning. Yeah, yeah, and and it was Winston Churchill. I've quoted this in the book that talks about that said uh, something similar. He said, "History shall be kind to me, for I intend to write it." You know, write it, yeah. <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, and Stalin in a similar vein, it's not technology related, but it just shows the nefarious uh, you know, uh, agenda of evil uh, people. He's the one who said, I care not who counts the votes. I care not who casts the votes as long as I'm the one who counts them, something yes. like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, technology in the wrong hands can be a formidable foe. And, th and that's why it's relevant to what we're talking about. And, and my next book, Spirit of the False Prophet, Hacking and Tracking Humanity, uh, is all about this because if you understand what's happening and you understand Jesus' admonition to uh, pay attention to the signs of the times, you know, we seem to be um, really getting closer and closer to the end times where the types of things described in the book of Revelation uh, can feasibly happen without even the slightest stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's unfolding right before our eyes. Absolutely. And, and, um, and JB, if I could take just a moment for a an excursus here, yeah. Um, and and this is not planned. This is this is just uh, really driven by the the way our conversation is is moving today. Um, everybody that hears this, please get hard copies of JB's books. The research in them is fantastic. Uh, this is top notch work here, and make sure it's in a format that can't be manipulated easily from anywhere in the world. Um, so, you know, get the hard copy books of it. Uh, there's some really good information here. Um, you Something that I appreciate <laughs> incredibly with your books is you document your sources. That is one real value of, of being in academia, is you learn the importance of documentation. And so many people in this area uh, that you're in and in dealing with, I don't know if you would call it conspiracies or or how you want to phrase it, but they will say things. Sometimes it's correct and sometimes it's incorrect. But what drives me the most, uh, 
I don't know, insane when the people are correct, but they don't provide references, right? The sources just trust me. Um, and so uh, if you haven't gotten the hard copies of these, please order them. Um, and I don't make a penny from this. My 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 bank account will not change one cent uh, <laughs> when you buy these books. But but I do think that, the like I said, the research is great. This is something I've been researching for a long, long time. Um, it's a great reference. I hand it out to people. And, you know, and again, get that hard copy um, because nobody can come in and change it for you. Yeah, I pr I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the citations because from some of my not my colleagues, but people in academia, not very many, but a handful through the through the last year since the books have come out. Uh, I've gotten some pushback for why didn't I footnote every single thing? Well, first of all, there would have been, you know, 10 footnotes per page. You know, if you look at the citations at the back of my book, the bibliography, volume two, there's 66 pages uh, just in volume two. I think there's 38 pages in volume one. Um, and uh all of the the data in the books is easily traceable because I introduce each comment or topic or whatever by saying something like, as Bill Jones said in his June 7th, 1972 article in People magazine, you know, so all you got to do is go to the back, look up the author by name, it's alphabetical bibliography, and you can find it. But we intentionally did not insert footnotes. Uh, although many of my books have them, a lot of my books are more academic focused. Uh, and but this was an intentional decision because we wanted this information to be easily readable by the laity, by anybody. And somehow it's been our experience, and the publishers uh, indicated this that when you have a bunch of footnotes and people are thumbing through the book and looking, and they see a bunch of footnotes at the bottom of each page, it meant, tends to intimidate them. And so it was yeah. just a, a style preference, but the, the citations are all still there and easily documentable and, and people can do their own research. But I'm like you, you know, I, I read a ton of books on the New World Order and my, my library's filled with them, my, both my print library and my digital library. And it's frustrating when they don't give the sources, you know, even if they're right, like you said, but especially if they're wrong, because if they're wrong, you know, it's like they're trying to hide something. It's like, it's almost Absolutely. like they know they're wrong. And so that's why they didn't cite anything. So, and I can, th I'm thinking of a couple of writers that I've read several of their books that are that way. And, um, but, you know, by God's grace, you know, we've, we've, uh, you know, this wasn't my first book I spent in, in our journey and God's plan for our life, spent a number of years in, in higher ed and uh, learned uh, to, to do that because you can get in a lot of trouble if you don't. And if you're writing a journal article for a peer reviewed journal and you don't, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's, you're going to be uh, held to account for that. So yeah, I appreciate those kind words. Uh, you know, they are comprehensive. The, the third book is coming out uh, in October still. That's still our target. I've done a little bit of work on it yesterday. Uh, we've had, we've got delayed because of some issues uh, around our uh, property with flooding, but uh, you know, we're, we're back on track again and uh, it's not going to be volume three in terms of a title, but it's the same theme. We've already got a mock-up of the cover. It looks fantastic. Same uh, artwork. Uh, it's going to be called Spirit of the False Prophet, Hacking and Tracking Humanity. And we hope to have those go on pre-sale, pre-order, like we did with all of our other books, uh, again, 
you know, pre-sale might even be late September, and then the books will start shipping in October. So pray for us as we focus on uh, hacking and tracking humanity and the role that the false prophet will play in the future and how the stage is being set for his tasks that he will do in the in the end time. So, so, so order those hard copies, folks. You need them. Yeah. Spiritoftheantichrist.org is the best place to go. You can get them on Amazon as well, if that's easier for you. Um, but uh, spiritoftheantichrist.org takes you right to our website where you can click click on there and order it. So, well, we've talked about a lot of great stuff today, touched on topics. To, you know, I could have conversations with you all day. In fact, we used to, right? When we, when we worked together. Absolutely. We, uh, we were hard workers, though. We stayed late into the night working. It never, it never affected our the, our quality of our work output. But man, we had some great discussions uh, about all kinds of things. But uh, anything else on the AI horizon that we want to talk about today? Yeah, um, got a few stories I, I, I'd like to just discuss briefly. This won't take too long. And I'm trying to divide these up into, into groups. Um, and these groups are subjective. So the good, the kind of mixed news about AI, and then the concerning news about AI. Um, and so because this is part of the process we're all going to have to go through is when we are facing these pervasive AIs, uh, you know, what is a good use of it? Because um, I don't take the approach of all AI is bad. Um, it's it's not. It's just a technology. It's a tool. Um, it's how we choose to use it, like any other technology, like any other tool, is where, we, where our focus needs to be. So, so with that as a um, as a framework here, um, first one we have a, a company called Aspia Space. Looks like it's a, a, a UK uh, EU kind of company, and they are launching a system that will help farmers track vegetation growth on Earth. And so, what they want to do is work primarily with farmers and give them information about their crops, uh, the pasture lands that they're in and just overall natural resources. And this should allow the farmers to maximize their crop yields without all of the labor of monitoring their crop growth. Mm -hmm. So they have a AI system, an algorithm called ClearSky, and it takes data that ClearSky receives from ground penetrating radar images, or excuse me, cloud penetrating radar images from the uh, European Space Agency Sentinel-1 satellite system converts those into optical images and then analyzes it. And from those images, that kind of pattern recognition, and, and by the way, this would be a different kind of AI technology than say what OpenAI uh, has with ChatGPT. This is not about producing language output, natural language output, but this is about analyzing subtleties in the, in the uh, optical images that it's getting of these uh, crops. And so, but with that, they can make forecasts about future vegetation growth and can also help farmers accurately time uh, when they should harvest their crops. Um, they can get a, a overall sense for the entire crop when the optimal time to harvest it is, as opposed to the farmer auditing, you know, a handful of locations and making a judgment for the entire crop based upon that handful of samples. Hmm. So, um, you know, this is a pretty tremendous step forward. Oh, yeah, it's going to um, definitely maximize the yields for sure. But I can't absolutely. help but wonder if Clear Sky could be used to uh, eliminate all the geoengineering that's going on up there, all the solar radiation management and the, you know, sprayed chemicals and stuff like that. But uh, who knows? That's another, that's another rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, so in a, another area, I mean, you know, I'd mentioned earlier when we were talking about how uh, AI systems have been better at uh, reading x-rays and CAT scans and so forth than humans have for a while. Well, here's another application. Um, dementia is a growing issue globally. And so there is a, a new tool that um, is, is being um, worked on, and it looks like it's, it's working fairly well, that can listen to a recording of somebody's voice and analyze it for subtle patterns that are associated with dementia. So by simply speaking and allowing your voice to be analyzed, this AI can help give you an idea of how much at risk you are of dementia and if you're at a higher risk to go and get some sort of early care for that. Hmm. So again, this is, um, you know, this is a good application of AI. Now, let's move on to some things that are mixed in nature. Okay, I'm going to leave everybody up to, to uh, put these in a different category. And this first one is admittedly kind of humorous. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, our favorite AI scientist, uh, had, <laughs> had to say this about AI. He said, now, over the course of decades, um, it has become a reality, referring to the Terminator movies. Schwarzenegger is arguing that the system in that movie, the AI system called Skynet, um, is here today, that that kind of AI is a reality. So as a matter of fact, he went on to say that there is a non-zero chance of AI going full Terminator. So kind of interesting, you know, not, you know, being definitely tongue in cheek about uh, his AI analysis, but he, he might uh, have been shown some stuff uh, because of how influential he is that would blow our minds. I don't know. Um, another, another one to think about here, um, and this is in that, that mixed category, um, there is a... Um, a tool that programmers use called Git, which is for um, managing source code for computer programs that they're writing. And so there's a company called GitHub, which is the largest code repository using Git in the world. So um, when I'm looking to do uh, solve a problem um, using programming, one of the places I will typically go to to look for examples that somebody else has posted is GitHub. It's a tremendous technology uh, community and a technology resource. Well, they brought out a product powered by OpenAI called Copilot, which looks at the code you're putting into GitHub and can search the other repositories or the code repositories at GitHub and give you suggestions. It can help you write your code faster, better, all of these things. And um, the... Um, and so they've been looking at uh, the, the code that's been in GitHub as of late. And if you went back a few years ago, it was overwhelmingly written by humans. But at this point, um, a significant uh, percentage, I think it's actually majority, of the code in GitHub now that's being submitted is being done through AI systems. Hmm. So one way or another, um, AI is influencing these other programs that are being produced. I'm not saying it's it's uh, bad. You know, it's been uh, the little bit that I've worked with it helpful. Uh, it's a good resource. Um, but again, you know, we need to be aware of that uh, ability for um, a system like this over time to gradually manipulate information. So, yeah, that, that, that goes back to the Mission Impossible plot. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, you kind of give it an inch, it takes a mile, and all of a sudden you've got 
the blind leading the blind, AI producing AI stuff, you know, and it's it can be a problem. Absolutely. So, and again, I'm not saying anything is wrong with GitHub. Um, I think Copilot is a great tool. I have a subscription to it, full disclosure. Um, and it's it's very handy. But I think we also need to just make sure we're not blindly trusting things, hmm. um, be it an AI system or a human for that matter, right? Yeah. We're pretty good at, at watching out for people. We're not good right now at watching out for what comes from AIs. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so this kind of uh, uh, goes into... Um, our earlier conversation about the AI detection tools. So the White House recently, a few weeks ago, had a number of companies like OpenAI, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, and Meta, which used to be Facebook. And, um, and they were tasked with ways to make AI-generated content safer. And so part of it is dealing with that whole problem of, was this written by a human or by a machine? If it's written by the machine, and we trust it. So, um, so we're going to see some changes coming uh, to these systems in the near future uh, that will meet whatever these standards are that the White House is hoping the companies will will implement in the products. Um, some sort of watermark, almost, where we can detect if some output, text or especially images, uh, was done by an AI. So this is going to be this is going to be one to keep an eye on. Uh, in the coming months. Uh, and this one might actually take more than a few months. This one might be measured in years um, because now we have the government involved and we know how quickly that tends to move. Hmm. Now let's move on to some of the more concerning stories. And, and this first one uh, will should, should definitely get our attention, especially from some of the earlier parts of our conversation today. I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, there was a, a man who had a, a smart home. He had a lot of... Uh, you know, Amazon-enabled devices, including his door locks for his home. And he was getting a delivery from a Amazon delivery driver. Uh, the guy who owned the home spoke something to the, uh, the man delivering it. Um, and the Amazon delivery driver misinterpreted what the man said as being a racial slur, reported it to Amazon. Amazon then locked this man out of his home and all his systems for a week. And that's the kind of thing we need to be cautious about. Yeah. Uh, so, so when I'd read this story, one of the things I was thinking about, just like we, we spoke about earlier on getting hard copies of critical books, is because I had made that shift years ago to largely being digital, right? My books are going to be digital. Can you imagine what would happen if, say, all of your information was digital? All of your books were digital. All of your content was digital. And then you said or did something that the powers that be didn't approve of. Uh, you, you're associated with the wrong people, whatever it is. They could just then take away your resources. What oh, if you yeah. got locked out of all your books, out of all your pictures, things of that nature? That's yeah, or, a or your financial accounts. You know, that, that same sure. principle that I've talked about extensively when it comes to digital currency which is if you can't touch it, you don't own it. That applies 
to everything. That applies to your door locks. I have a I have a keypad lock on our office door, which is on our property at our where we live, uh, just because we have you know family members that work for the ministry and it's just easier for people to get in and out. But I also have a key, and that key yeah. is the fail safe because you know never mind nefarious agendas or the government takeover. If the batteries go dead or if the electricity goes down or something, and somehow that malfunctions, I want to be able to get into my house. Books, I, you know, if you can't touch it, you don't own it. I, if I you know, lose access to my digital library, you know, where am I going to go? So, you know, this is, um, you know, all part of the the ultimate agenda of the full spectrum planetary control grid, which is interconnected through technology. It doesn't mean that all of these conveniences that many of us use right now, the security systems and, you know, smart uh, thermostats and stuff, it's kind of nice to be able to, you know, we travel so much, it, it's nice, uh, you know, to be able to go log online and see, oh, did I set the thermostat right? Or did I turn the oven off? That kind of thing. But, uh, uh, you know, you need to understand that that technology could easily be turned on you to control you. And that experience that that homeowner had uh, with Amazon is a classic uh, example. I hope Amazon was held accountable for that because, frankly, you know, it's not their place to do it anyway. I mean, even though, you know, in this case, it turned out that it was a misunderstanding. But even if the guy was doing something abhorrent, um, what gives Amazon the right to lock you out of your house? That's that's a, a great area of concern when you talk about these large tech companies. They're almost becoming governments under themselves. And and that's going to be a real challenge for us. Yeah. I forget so, who it was that said uh, you know, anything that has smart tech smart in front of it, smart home, smart meter, smart phone, smart refrigerator you know, the, it, it's implying that you're stupid, right? Just think smart equals spy. They're spying on you. They're controlling you, right? Uh, and so, again, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm guilty of using a few smart things. Obviously, I use a smartphone because for our ministry right now, it's the most efficient way to conduct ministry. But I have, I've resisted the smart meters. I could tell you stories about that and so, several of the other things. So, yeah, anything else in the category of, sort of the the more eerie or dangerous side of AI? Yeah, so Amazon was recently fined $47 million for um, collecting data from kids' toys that were smart toys, if, if I can use that phrase. And um, actually, I take that back, it's $30 million. Um, but um, for collecting data from kids' toys, even and, and retaining that data and using that data, even after requests to delete the data were received by the company. So one thing to be aware of, and again, not taking the approach that uh, technology is bad and you should stay away from it. Um, I use smart technology all the time. Um, there is a 99.9999% chance that at night um, I turn off my lights by telling Alexa to turn off the lights in my room. Um, so I'm not against that at all, but we do need to, A, make sure, like you're saying, to have a a, a low-tech backup, okay? If you want to have the, the high-tech smart door lock, that's great. Make sure you got a key, right? Mm -hmm. The other one is be clear on what kind of data you're giving up to these companies when you use the products and understand that they are acting more like a power unto themselves, almost like a government agency. And um, even though they will tell you 
oh yeah, we're, we're going to protect your privacy, you control your data, all of these things. You might not. Okay, you might not. We have many, many examples of tech companies abusing um, things like that. And, yeah. and so, you know, with that, um, and you've seen these, these stories, they are continuing. I was hoping it was, was being blown out of proportion when the stories first came out about people using AI systems that can mimic the voices of other people and then getting uh, samples of say the voice of maybe it's somebody's teenage daughter and then having the AI talk to loved ones, make a phone call and talk to loved ones using that impersonated voice of their loved one saying, I've been kidnapped, you need to send money, whatever it is. Um, unfortunately, those stories are continuing to grow. And I will say the AI tools to do that type of generation are getting better. Mm. So, you know, maybe um, maybe an upcoming topic um, that could be discussed is to, in, in having these plans to deal with these threats, um, and, and they're not going to go away. You know, you can't ignore this. This is this is a reality of life now. Um, how can you put safeguards in with your loved ones to not be exploited by somebody who's using this technology for evil? Yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing. And you know, uh, when when John the Apostle, late in his life, wrote the first uh, his first letter, First John. And he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I don't think he could have envisioned the application of false prophecy that has now come about 2,000 years later. In his day, it was just human beings alleging to speak for God, and as it turns out, they were not legitimate. They were not, uh, you know, envoys for God Almighty, the creator of the universe. They were false prophets. But today, we've got false teachers, false prophets, people that are lying. You know, uh, you know everything they, they do is a lie. Everything that comes out of their mouth is a lie. Uh, you know, and so I think it's going to become more and more important for us to be able to show that discern discernment and uh, and recognize truth from error. So yeah, let's dedicate a future show to that if we can. If we can, so and and maybe related to that is um, is this next story. So we've been talking a lot about Chat GPT. Um, so there are models, GPT models, that you can download and run. And and there's a version of one of these large language models called Worm GPT. Now Worm GPT is a malicious tool that can be used to create phishing emails. Now, phishing emails are emails that look like they could be from a family member, a company you work with, maybe the company you work for, and try to persuade you to click a link or take an action that benefits the bad actor and, and is, of course, probably to your detriment. And so what Worm GPT does is it creates these phishing emails. And because it can reason and it can apply um, an intelligence, a reasoning intelligence to the creation of these, uh, they are using it to uh, get get access to people's banking information, for example, um, and and stealing money. So, phishing is nothing new. It's been a problem for a long time. Um, it's um, in some ways it's the uh, descendant of the old uh, what's typically called a four hundred nine scam, um, the advanced fee scams, where you get the the letter back in the day from the Nigerian prince who wants to 
share his fortune with you, uh, that sort of story. Um, well, that became, uh, instead of getting a letter in the mail randomly, it uh, became emails. And and now it's grown into um, the, these types of attacks where they want to get access to your your banking information, maybe your your email system, so they can infer what other accounts of yours to attack. So now we have a system, though, that can use AI to generate these emails to try to trick people. And this is definitely going to be a, a, a huge issue, uh, this automated, large-scale uh, kind of attacks against people. So yeah, that so should probably also be a, an upcoming topic. How to watch out for phishing emails and not get scammed by these systems. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, under the broader heading of, you know, how to uh, hedge ourselves against the you know, nefarious aspects of, of AI. I mean, evil is becoming more and more sophisticated. I mean, you, you just have to read the book of Revelation and we can see that after the rapture, when the Antichrist takes the helm, we're going to see unprecedented levels of deception and evil. Jesus warned against the deception. And so we're, we're starting to see right here, day after day, more ways in which, you know, that could actually come about, this increasing evil. Well, Let's uh, let's wrap it up for today. I tell you, my head is spinning with the stuff that we talked about. It's just been nonstop, valuable, intriguing, uh, interesting information, and I hope our listeners feel the same way. Um, and uh, but yeah, just uh, yeah, just amazing. Uh, you know, I think the title for the episode really turned out to be uh, 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 you know accurate: the snowballing nature of AI. And uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for being with us, Shane. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, just, you know, uh, be prayerful, um, mm -hmm. be uh, be aware, don't be fearful of this technology and what people, evil people are going to do with it, but be aware and, um, you know, cling on, hold on to the truth, cling to Jesus. And uh, that really is the, uh, the, the way we need to live. So, amen. Praise God for that. And uh, thanks again for being with us. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, don't forget, we've got a special Saturday podcast tomorrow with Randy on how to prepare for civil unrest. So, that'll drop early in the morning. By the time you wake up, you should be able to uh, listen to that, whether you're on the East Coast, Central Time, Mountain, or West Coast. Uh, and then uh, go back and check out all of the great content that we put up there uh, this week, including my devotional, The Hero of Bible Prophecy, our discussion with uh, Lucas on the enigmatic parables of the kingdom. I posted another uh, episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. Prophecy Night was, was uh, great, as uh, always this week, with some great questions at the end. Uh, and a great discussion of WorldCoin and some of the late-breaking uh, technology in the realm of world organizations. We just see a, a proliferation of organizations with world in the title. We talked about that Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday was World Events Update with Randy. Two podcasts yesterday on Thursday. I was on Stand Up for the Truth with Mary Danielson. And also we had Brad Mastin on talking about what we should be doing from a practical preparedness standpoint while we wait for the return of the Lord. So uh, thanks again for listening. God bless you, everyone. Have a great weekend. If you're in the Denver area, come see us on Sunday for uh, worship at Plum Creek Chapel. Otherwise, we do live stream the 10 o'clock service. So you can go to notbyworks.org and, uh, and click on the live stream button on Sundays at around 10 o'clock Mountain Time. God bless.